Welcome to the Heroes at Home podcast, where we believe heroes can thrive both at work and at home. This podcast is for those who stand watch while we sleep, who run into buildings while others run out, for those who deploy to hard places to have hard fights, and for the families that support them. Through candid conversation, we will discuss the side of things that don't get glorified in the media, what happens when they come home. We'll be talking with heroes from all walks of life and their partners, children, friends, and beyond, so together we can build a stronger family. I'm Noel Metter, CEO, joined by my co-host, Kenny Thomas. Nick, I want to welcome you to the show and thanks for being with us. Uh, man, we're so excited about this episode. And before we jump in, I just want to let the listeners know, and if you're viewing online, the nature of what we're going to be covering today, there could be potentially some triggers along the way. And I would just say, and we don't always put this out there, but if you have kids in the room, it's going to be a, a more difficult topic to, to jump into, but one that I really believe not only will resonate with many, but also it's a journey of hope. And um, man, it just, Nick, I've gotten to know him over the last couple of weeks and amazing guy. Him and his wife truly are amazing. And uh, so thanks for sharing your guys' story. And I'll just Absolutely. let you, I'll turn it's it over to you. To I appreciate you uh, helping me get my story out there. Yeah. Nick, probably the easiest way is just to jump in to kind of where did this start for you guys? And ultimately, I met Nick at one of our first responder retreats. He's a police officer in Eastern Washington. As they unpacked the story, I was like, this is a story that needs to be shared. I think many have either contemplated or potentially dealt with this. And mm-hmm. he's here to share there is a way forward. There is a way through whatever thing that you're going through right now. Um, and not only that, but it's not just about him, it's his wife too. So Nick, mm-hmm. I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you take it away. I've been with Eastern Police for uh, about 10 years now, and I started my law enforcement journey right when I had met my wife, Alicia. And when I began the start of this journey, everything was as I had hoped it would be. You go through the academy, and you finally graduate, and your cape is flapping behind you, and you think you're Superman, and it's just everything that you would hope it would be. But slowly, after time, You know, you experience various traumas that accumulate to the point where something gives. And the difficult thing for me was it was almost, you know, like the frog in boiling water. The slow changes over time, I couldn't recognize until there was one point when my wife looked at me and said, you've changed. And I remember that night very vividly. It was probably about six years, seven years into my career so far. And every time I would experience a critical incident, I I would just kind of brush it off that it's not a big deal. This is just stuff that we experience. This is supposed to be normal, but it's not. It's not normal to see some of the things that we do. It's not normal to have to go through investigating deaths and it's not normal to investigate suicides and these fatality collisions and all of this horrible things that we're exposed to we just chalk off as it's just part of the job so i never sought out counseling or anything uh, close to that i had a few major critical incidents there was an apartment fire that i had experienced that was a little too close for comfort on uh, punching the final ticket, 
you've been a part of various critical incidents where you know you might have someone fighting with you on the side of the road or I've had an individual commit suicide in front of me you know just all sorts of different things and it finally got to the point where I started to feel a certain way I kind of started to lose emotion I couldn't feel things my kids would want to play with me but I didn't find joy in that and I didn't know why I started feeling numb towards my wife and the relationship that I had with my wife was starting to suffer because I wasn't well. Then it got to the point where there was marital issues that resulted because of this as well. You know, there was infidelity on my part that almost ruined my marriage and we're working through that. And I'm so thankful that I have Alicia. She really is the the most amazing person I've ever met. For her to to be by my side to this day through everything I put her through, yeah, she's incredible. But it was actually on October 6th of last year, you know, I'd finally gotten to the point where I just felt this darkness, like it would never end, just pure agony. This built up over time and turned into something that I just couldn't deal with. And there had been times where, you know, I had... Alicia said, you need to talk to somebody. So I'd use like the employee assistance program. And I would, I would go and I'd talk to a counselor, but it's five visits and there's no way that you can even start to unpack the things that you go through in five visits. So I would just check the box and say, yes, I've gone to counseling, but it wasn't doing anything. And on October 6th, I had made the decision that I was going to kill myself. I had gone to my parents' house and basically said goodbye. And I came to the conclusion, you know, that I, I did want to say goodbye to my family. So I had, I wrote a, a letter to uh, my wife and my, my four kids. One of the things that I had asked Alicia is if you were to experience, you know, a line of duty death with me, would you want to see my body? And she said, yeah, I, I think I would have to see your body for closure. So I had made the decision that I, I wasn't going to shoot myself in the head, but I was going to shoot myself in the heart. So I found a a place to do it. I had loaded my gun and I had just come to terms with the whole thing. Even with my, my planned suicide, I didn't feel emotion with it. I was just looking for any way to not have to deal with that pain and darkness that just consumed every ounce of me. And this was the only way that I knew how to do that because in my head, you know, I'm, I'm just telling myself lies that nobody's going to understand that I'm going to be less of a burden on people because I'm not well and I stress, you know, my wife and my family out. This is going to be better for them. You know, I'm telling myself all these lies to justify it. And I just, it was like, okay, this is going to happen. I loaded my gun and I held it to my heart and I was counting down from 10 and I got to two. And by the grace of God, there was a phone call. Uh, my phone started ringing and it was somebody that I've respected since I've met them. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't ignore that phone call. And so when I answered the phone, the person, you know, on the other end of the phone and, you know, another uh, sergeant was saying, you know, where are you at? And of course I'm, you know, I'm just going to downplay um, I'm in the Valley. And he goes, no, you know, I, I need to, I need to find you. Nick, I just need to talk. Like, just come talk to me. You know, it was the respect that I had for him where it was, okay, you know, I, I respect this guy so much. I, I have to go talk to him, but it's going to be the, the goodbye. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll come home. 
So I came home and as I round the corner to my house, I see him parked in front of my house in his patrol car and one of my best friends in the front seat. He was in civilian clothes, but he had his radio because he had heard what was going on and, and wanted to reach out and be supportive. I parked my truck and this individual, his name is Chris Oaks. He walked over and he grabbed the keys to my truck and he threw them behind him. And he grabbed me and just wrapped me up and I just broke down. And I just started sobbing because it was the first time that I felt like I had finally got a, a life preserver. Like I had been swimming for my whole life and I finally got to the boat and got to breathe. And so he just said, hey, I got you. It's gonna be okay. Just be here, be in the moment, you're safe. And so he told me, he goes, you know, you need to get help. This is okay. Nick, it's nothing to be ashamed of. This is something just like a broken leg. Okay. You're broken right now and you need to heal. And you can't do that with what you're doing. You know, what you're doing isn't working. So I've gotten in touch with Code 4 Northwest, which is a amazing group of people. And they were able to get me in touch with First Responder Wellness in Southern California for some treatment. And Oaks was standing there and saying, you know, I need you to get help. You know, I want you to go to this program. It's an inpatient program. And I, again, I'm trying to justify every reason why I can't go. And there was not a single excuse that they were going to accept for a reason not to go. It was, well, I can't miss work. Well, you know, you have sick leave. Okay, well, I can't, I can't be away from the kids. All right, well, Anthony's wife is going to help, and my wife will help. Okay, well, and it was just one thing after another, no excuse was going to be good enough. And so I, I finally realized I was going to go. And all of these emotions, you know, I was angry with myself. I was angry and ashamed, and I had an overwhelming sense of guilt. And I, I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to my wife or kids. You know, this was something that was so serious where they said, hey, you know, this is going to be the way that it happens, which... I didn't like at first, but looking back on it, as you know, as a sergeant, I would have had my guys do the exact same thing. They did it exactly how how I would have hoped anybody would. I might not have seen it in that moment, but they the support system that I had was nothing short of a miracle. So I got to first responder wellness on October eighth, and the whole way there, I'm just thinking, you know, this. Everyone's been telling me this whole time for the last 48 hours, I keep on hearing, you know, you're not alone, you're not alone, you're not alone. And I got to the point where I just said, prove it. And I walk through the front doors when I get to First Responder Wellness and here are five other guys who are experiencing very, very similar struggles. And I finally looked up and saw proof uh, that I wasn't alone, that this is something we experience because we're human and there's nothing wrong with that. And so I began a very intensive inpatient program for, I want to say about 75 days at first responder wellness. And that was exactly what I needed. It was almost as if I was able to restart the computer. I shut all of the programs down and opened it back up with a blank slate and I got into a very strict routine, which was, which was good for me. And I started to do things that were healthy to cope with things like stress and those traumas through therapy and 
individual work, things like journaling and my scripture study, because I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Those things help me. And I, I go to celebrate recovery where other people are struggling with various things in their life. And it helps to share. So all of those things I had been doing for two and a half months in Southern California. And then it was time to come home. The funny thing is I thought that going through my treatment was going to be the hardest thing I've ever done, but it wasn't. It mm. was coming home. Mm. I have to come home and I don't have the safety net anymore. You know, I was doing group and therapy, you know, for almost eight hours a day. So it was very controlled and I didn't have kids running around. I didn't have to worry about the kids' lunches or when they need to be picked up from school. I didn't have to worry about anything at work and uh, if my guys were getting a complaint that I needed to deal with or scheduling conflicts. I, I was able to focus 100% on me and my healing. But then when you come home, you have to focus on your healing and life. And that became very difficult. And I even started to experience some setbacks with my recovery. And so I had to, I had to make a decision that my aftercare was the most important thing for me right now. And so my aftercare is number one priority because I can't be the husband that Alicia needs if I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. I can't be the father that my kids deserve if I'm not okay. And so that suicide attempt, that was the low point and the catalyst in me starting to, I guess, realize the help and how serious, you know, the help that I needed and how serious this issue was. I've been working since I've been home. I'm back to work now. And there's all sorts of new challenges that present themselves every day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that I've realized is this is a lifelong journey for me. This is a marathon. And I'm used to more of the sprinting. I want results right away. But that's not how it, how it is in reality. So uh, you know, I continue that care as much as I can. Yeah. One of the questions that really struck me, I think when we initially started talking was what brought you into the profession that you said yes to and what kind of drove you into that and the factors that played into that. And ultimately when you found yourself thinking that this is, this is the last straw, like I, I need to check out. So what brought me into law enforcement, you know, I didn't always know that I was, that I was going to be in law enforcement. Going through high school, I drove every single one of the career counselors crazy because they kept asking me, you know, what's your plan? And I'm just nonchalant. I don't know. I'll figure it out as I go. And fortunately, I was, I was able to be very successful wrestling growing up. That led me to a few different places. And I ended up in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah and was wrestling for a little bit and then came back to Spokane and was thinking, okay, I need to, I need to find this career. What is it that's going to be my passion? Because I knew I didn't want to just punch the time clock, sit at a desk and, and come back. I wanted to do something that I truly was passionate about. I've always had a passion for helping people, but also doing things that everybody not necessarily has the courage to do or the will to do. And I have a cousin who is in law enforcement in Salt Lake City, and then I had an experience actually on my way to high school graduation, I was arrested for reckless driving. That whole experience, I'm like, okay, that's exactly how I don't want to be. <laughs> so, you know, talking to my cousin, you know, he's saying, you know, if you want to make a complaint about that, then 
maybe you should just become a cop and, and fix the culture yourself. And so that's, that's how I kind of got into it. And looking back, I was very, very fortunate to get on when I did, because it was like getting, getting a lottery ticket if, if you got the phone call. So yeah, yeah, I started with my department in September of 2012. Yeah, I think I, I had shared something at the retreat that was a kind of a connecting point in that what we're seeing more and more through therapists that are working like at, you know, the first responder wellness or Mighty Oaks or, you know, there's a number of different treatment centers. Mm-hmm. But what they're seeing more and more is that the percentage is hovering around 80 percent of those who go into some type of profession of service, whether that's military, first responder. Oftentimes it comes from uh, childhood trauma and yeah. dealing with tra- childhood trauma. And so I don't know if you're willing to share that, Nick, that part. Absolutely. Of the yeah, absolutely. Because it is it is part of the journey. So the the story leading up to there, that's how I perceived my life. I have always and I just assumed that this was my personality. If something happened that was negative, whether it was at home, outside of the job or at the job, Anytime I would have something happen, I would just bury it and I would bury it down and put a lid on it, wrap the chains around it, throw it in the, you know, the concrete and I'd never address it ever again. And one of those things stemmed from my childhood and I didn't understand or even think about it until I was in treatment and I was in treatment for probably about two and a half weeks and it still was very hard. I was still very angry. All of the emotion and the sting, all of it was still very fresh from the suicide attempt. And so I'm trying to figure out how I can get through these things. And I'm talking to my wife one morning before I was on my way to therapy. And she said, Nick, I'm going to ask you a question. And I said, okay. And she goes, were you sexually assaulted as a kid? And again, I just started breaking down. I just started sobbing. And it wasn't until my wife asked me that that I had even really been able to bring that back up and to recognize that trauma. And so when she said that, it really was a wave, a tidal wave of memory of trauma between the ages of six and seven and about 11 and 12, I was sexually assaulted and raped on different occasions. And I never told anybody. I never told my parents, never told my brother or sister. I didn't tell Alicia. I had never, since those incidents happened, I'd never even admitted it to myself out loud. There was guilt. There was shame. I wasn't protected. I felt like I had my childhood robbed from me. And so to cope with that, I became very angry, very angry, even as a child, because the only way that I knew that I was going to stay safe is if I was alone. And I would keep people at an arm's distance to keep them from getting close to me and hurting me. And even from a very, very young age, I can remember sitting on the stairs with my mom crying, asking her, why can't I live with Jesus? Not knowing how to even deal with these things as a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, even as far back as that, I can remember not being able to deal with that trauma and not wanting to have to. And that morning when Alicia asked me, I went into my therapist and I sat down. I said, okay, I haven't been 100% honest. I need to let you know that I was sexually assaulted and raped 
during this time period on different occasions. And again, just started sobbing. And she says, okay, we will get through this. I can't tell you how much courage it takes to come forward and tell me that. That must have been really hard for you. And then it was time to, okay, how are you going to deal with this trauma? And for anybody who's experienced a sexual assault, the first thing that I would say is, one, it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. That this is something that happened because somebody else made a decision. That free agency was stripped from them. Nobody chose for this to happen. So I would, I would definitely remind people of that. But also, if they're feeling like they can't get through it, I felt the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Because my therapist, who was probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, she was absolutely incredible. She asked if I wanted to do EMDR. And she explained the process with that. And in my head, in my mind, I thought, if I have to deal with this trauma, it's going to kill me. I can't physically get through this. It's too hard. It's too painful. And that was my mindset in the beginning. And I would imagine other people are going to feel that way. Just know it just feels that way right now. Every single time you go into a therapy session, as long as your healing is intentional, then you can start to move forward and you can start to heal some of those wounds. And I realized that The first few times where I used the employee assistance program and I was doing counseling, my healing wasn't intentional. It was checking the box. I would show up. We would talk for 45 minutes to an hour and I would leave. But I never wanted to address the problems that were causing me pain because it was too difficult for me. And so once I started to make my healing intentional, then I started to see improvement. And the improvement, while it's slow, slowly and you know it's like working out you go to the gym you run on the treadmill for an hour you come home and you want to see you know those six-pack abs and you know all the weight gone but it doesn't work like that healing is the same way after time i just started to feel better i didn't have one day where the lights flipped on and i'm thinking awesome it was a slow process and it takes dedication it's hard but it is worth it You know, I have everything that I could ever want in my life with just my family. And once I started to move forward in my healing process, those emotions that I wasn't able to feel started coming back. And I remember one night we had just finished dinner and I'm standing and I'm looking at my wife and I'm looking at my kids and I just started crying. And I said, I hadn't, I don't know what this is. I haven't felt this in so long. And she goes, what is it? I go, I think I'm happy. I think this is joy. I think this is content. I, you know, I have my kids mm. who are healthy and not everybody can say that. I have a loving wife. I have a, a, a home that I'm able to provide for my family. That's the greatest joy I could ever have. And I, yeah. to be able to experience that again, that was the point where I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, we're going to keep going. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's amazing as you explain that, you know, one of the things that we've seen over and over again is the analogy of a rucksack and, you know, so much of the emotion that gets put into that rucksack mm-hmm. at the core of it is this desire and this longing for joy and love and happiness and contentment. But the problem is that because of trauma and because of the, the incidents of many that are, you know, that you guys see on a regular basis, you're stuffing other emotions into that rucksack. You know, you've got dealings of right. sadness, frustration, guilt, shame, 
injustice, uh, anger, all those things. And so, you know, the, the reality is that those vulnerable emotions that make up love and joy and contentment, they become really stifled. They're squished down in the bottom of that rucksack until we actually deal with the other emotions that are there. It's almost impossible to really experience the true emotion, the original emotion that we, we long for. And so, I mean, the way right. that you just described that just brought me back to that because I see it over and over again, but it's painful. I mean, having it to is. take those emotions out and actually put them on the table. EMDR is a great way, you know, because it's mm-hmm. not just talking about it. It's also rapid eye movement and those things. But the courage to have to face that, I think, is one that many don't ever take the step towards mm-hmm. what you've taken, right? Because it's like, man, it's, it's too much. So what would you say to them, right. to the person who's listening right now, that who's like, literally, I, my story is your story, Nick, mm-hmm. but I'm too scared to do it because I know if I open that door, it's a Pandora's box. Yeah, and that's exactly how I felt when I was down there. Looking at you know the box of all of those traumas, I was just saying, there's too much. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. It's too much. Too many things have happened and they're too painful. But one of the things that I was told over and over and that I had to finally start believing for myself is I got through it already. Hmm. The event already happened and I'm still here. I did survive. Yeah. So the hardest part is over. The trauma already happened. And unfortunately, there's nothing that we can do about that. But we can still heal. Hmm. You can still have a very fulfilling life filled with joy and happiness. It does take some courage to finally make that leap. And that's almost what it's like. You're standing at the edge, looking over to this bottomless pit. And in order to heal, you have to jump. It takes some trust in yourself. It takes some trust in the therapist that you might be working with. It took me a few different times to find the right therapist. You know, you got to find your flavor. But If you keep on working, it gets better. And one of the things that I had to start healing myself, and I know that anybody who's in law enforcement has heard this, especially if you've been military, you hear slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Chris Oaks, the guy who saved my life, he would always say, no, that's wrong. No, slow is slow, fast is fast. And there was one day where I, I like, oh my gosh, it's the same thing with healing. And you hear people say, time heals. No, wrong. Hmm. Healing heals. Hmm. And so for the people who are saying, okay, I just need to wait this out. I'm, I'm going to get better as time goes on. No, you have to get help because we can't do this alone. You can't treat yourself. This is going to be something that you need to get professional help with. You're not going to be able to read a book and just be magically cured. There's a lot of resources out there that you might be able to find in books, videos, podcasts like this, but it's going to take that and intentional healing to be able to move forward. And it can be done. It absolutely can be done. And there's going to be setbacks just, just in the healing process. It's natural to relapse and go backwards. I've experienced that as well. That's part of the process similar to somebody who struggles with alcoholism. There's going to be a relapse at some point. And the same goes with mental health. It can get better. I come back from Southern California and I was awesome. It was great. And two, three weeks later, 
here I am, a grumpy Gus on the couch. And my wife's going, hey, are you doing your aftercare? Are you been meditating? Have you been journaling? Mm. No. Okay, well, time to get back to it. Yeah. I want to dive into that in a second because I think that is one of the key things that we see so often and your story mirrors it in many ways of the the hard work that is required when you come home from treatment. But one of the things that really, man, it just, it impacted me deeply was when you shared your first journal coming on day one of wellness in treatment and then your uh-huh. final day there. And I, would you be willing to share those two journal entries? Of course. Yeah. So one of the things that I started doing when I had began my treatment was I started to journal and, you know, you go to rehab and you got to drink the Kool-Aid. You know, I've, I've never been one for journaling or yoga meditation. For me, I go to the range and I shoot. Mm-hmm. I was never really into that other stuff, but what I was doing was clearly not working. And so I did make a commitment to journal every day and I still do that. And on the very first day I sat down and, and I made a journal entry. I will just warn people. There are some, uh, there is one foul language word in here. So on the very first day, since I've gone through treatment, apparently I I flipped on some emotional button, so I might uh, might get a little choked up here, so just bear with I'm, me. I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, day one, October 8th, 2022. Where do I start? How did I get here? I can't seem to even remember when I started to lose control. I'm 33 years old, a husband, a father, a sergeant, a student, and on Thursday, I tried to kill myself. Maybe in the future, I will write about it, but not today. I've needed help for a long time, too long. I'm lucky I haven't lost everything. Oaks, Anthony, Day, and we met all saved my life. Alicia, Kale, Ava, Brody, and Chloe are everything I have to live for. This whole week has been the hardest of my life. I got to the first responder wellness program in Santa Ana, California today. After a COVID test, I went to the Netherway house. I had a two and a half hour intake and they took everything from me. They took my phone for blackout week. I would do anything to be able to talk to Alicia. She's my best friend and my only constant. I miss her so fucking much. Don't know how I'm going to make it through a whole week without being able to talk to her. I'm stuck on 24 hour lockdown and have to be checked on constantly. I have five roommates, Frank, Nolan, Steve, Caleb, and Cisco. Turns out I'm not alone. This is written on the night before I left. I fight. I fight with myself. I fight with my past. It haunts me. It waits in the dark for the right time to strike. It's been killing me for years and it's never ending. I fight with demons of doubt who constantly remind myself that I am less than. It has poisoned my mind into believing things that have trapped me in a pit of despair. I fight with the pain that I feel, consistently torturous, a pain that can't be described, only felt, worsening as each day closes. I fight with my past failures. Each failure living on in my memories reminded me of what I couldn't achieve or couldn't do right. I fight with more demons of doubt, a doubt that stares back at me, convincing me that it's something I can never overcome. I fight with my exhaustion, 
physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausted. A debilitating exhaustion that cuts me to my very core. I fight with my anxiety. A feeling that gets so intense I believe death is inevitable. Anxiety that steals the breath from my chest. Anxiety that makes my heart race to the point where it will either explode or come out. I fight with apathy. Apathy that overtakes any emotion that I could ever feel. It makes me numb. I fight with crippling depression. Depression that makes even getting out of bed some days unbearable. Like a lifetime achievement that can't be reached. A depression that tries to kill me. I fight with every what-if imaginable. With the thought that maybe, if I just did one thing different, I wouldn't be where I am. But I am here. Maybe all of this happened to me, so it wouldn't happen to somebody else. Maybe I'm fighting all of this, so my kids won't have to. I'm still here, and I'm still fighting. I will fight for as long as it takes. I will fight with every ounce of my existence. I will fight the demons who stand against me. I will fight the pain. I will fight the unrelenting voice that tells me to quit. But I am a warrior. And one thing will always be certain. I will be victorious. It's time to go home. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say, man, I love you. And, uh, I don't even, I mean, I've, I've only gotten to know Nick over the last couple of weeks, but the reason I can say that is because I see a guy who has, he's living from a full heart, a whole heart. And that has been a process. And I think the journey that he's so perfectly articulated is one that I continue to see happen over and over again. This is a story that I think is very relevant right now in our first responder community. And many are going through the same steps and the caution of being able to share is understandable, but I think the courage to come out and share this is just remarkable. And I know that it's going to save lives at the end of the day, it's going to save lives. And so thank you, um, Nick, for just <clears throat> being willing to, to step into that. And I, I think that the, the fight that you mentioned in that final journal, journal entry is very much something that continues to be a day-to-day thing. And I maybe just share a little bit with the listeners, like what did that look like going home? Because I think that's oftentimes where the rubber hits the the road, right? I mean, it is the medium. So Absolutely. The first thing that I would say to anybody who is listening, who is experiencing emotions that are hard to deal with, who have experienced trauma that is affecting them, anybody who can see that their day-to-day life is struggling because of the things they experienced, they need to hear that they are deserving of happiness Mm -hmm. and they're worthy of love and everybody deserves to be able to heal that way. And so for anybody listening, take that leap. You have to take that leap of faith. And in my situation, the decision, while it was mine, it was almost made for me. But I would hope that it didn't ever get to that point for somebody who's my, who might be listening. Suicide is a very painful, painful thing to think about and want to contemplate. But it's so much more than just you. There's 
every person who loves and cares about you on the way. And we're taking that pain and we're just giving it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And it can be okay. And for me, when I'm in treatment, I was given tools to start applying in my everyday life when I got home. And one of the things that I had said earlier is the healing has to be intentional. When I got home, I knew that I had to start implementing healthy practices to deal with some of these traumas and stress. Because once you get home, life doesn't stop. I'm protected down in treatment, but when I come back to work and you know, you have potential for more critical incidents to happen. When you go through treatment and you start getting tools, you become a thousand percent more self-aware. And so that self-awareness acts as the flashing red light, you know, like on the dashboard, hey, check the engine. So you can start to realize, hey, I'm starting to feel depressed. I'm starting to feel anxiety. Then you can associate, okay, well, why am I feeling this way? And you can start to work through those problems and those issues. The hardest thing that I've ever had to do was pick up the phone. It's sometimes it feels like it's a thousand pounds. You know, you hear all the time, you know, hey, if you ever need anything, just call. Well, I always took that as, well, I'm going to be a burden. I'm just going to stress people out and they don't want to hear. When I was in treatment, they said, hey, if one of your friends calls you up and says, hey, Nick, I'm struggling and I need help. I'm like, yeah, I'm in the truck. I'm on my way there. Well, that was the same for everybody who told me that. And I'm, and I'm stripping them and stealing the opportunity for them to support me and help me heal. And so pick up that phone. It doesn't have to be a burden. It's something that could save your life and get you through the next incident just to get to the next day. You know, the other thing that I've realized in healing is that there's going to be times where you hit the plateau. Similar to working out, you get the, that wall where it's like, I can't get results anymore. And just like working out, I had to change my entire routine up, everything, and kind of shock the system again. So instead of journaling about just my day, I might change the way I journal and say, okay, I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes and my pen just can't stop moving for 15 minutes. Whatever comes out, comes out. Or maybe I'm going to say, you know, what's one emotion that I felt today that I can write about? Maybe it's good. You know, I felt joy today or I felt happiness today. And I'm going to talk about that. Or maybe it's, you know what? I had a lot of anxiety today. And so I'll change the way that I do certain things in order to keep it fresh because it engages my mind a little bit more. You start to become efficient. You know, you journal for two months and it's like, okay, journal, uh, you write down the sentences and you just move on. Similar to just going to counseling to check the box. So I would have to change everything up and that kind of keeps the, the healing process new and fresh and allows me to, to kind of get through those plateaus. There are a lot of resources out there that I would highly, highly, highly suggest you reaching out and using. A lot of them are available through departments. And there's a lot outside of departments as well. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, if it's okay, if you can give me that list and we can add that to the show notes and it's part of, you know, so if someone can quick reference, these are the different ways that they can get that support and help. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. The element of not going alone, I think is such a huge theme in your story and many other story. I think you, you first really saw that proved out at the treatment, but then coming home where there occasions where you 
saw that play out in terms of your healing where it was picking up the phone and making the phone call and asking for that help. How hard was it? And is that, would you say, is that a catalytic piece of the healing? You know, it can still be hard. It's going to be expected to kind of slide backwards a little bit. And, and that happened to me after I came home. I started to slowly go back to old habits. And my therapist, who again, absolutely brilliant. I said, you know, I think it's time to go home. And she said, okay, I would really hope that you stay a little bit longer. And in my situation, it was, it was time for me to come home. And she said, okay, I just want to tell you this. I'm not trying to scare you or freak you out, but Nick, when you go home, your brain is going to say, I know exactly what to do here. We, we are going to try to kill ourselves. And so when I came home, she was right. The environment that I was in, even my home, um, it was, okay, I know exactly what we do here. When we're here, we're depressed. When we're here, we don't feel emotion. We have anxiety. I can't trust people. I'm angry. I'm mean to my wife and kids because I don't, I need to keep them at arm's distance. So all of that happened and naturally I went backwards and I eventually did have to pick up the phone. And I called, you know, a brother of mine, my best friend that I was able to meet at First Responder Wellness. And we just, we connected and clicked on, on the very first day in such a strong way. I called him up and I said, I'm not doing well. And that was the only thing that I needed to say. I'm not doing well. Okay, let's talk about it. Why aren't you doing well? And I said, I don't know. He goes, no, there's, there's always a reason. Think about it. Why aren't you doing well? Are you journaling? No, I'm not journaling. Okay. Are you going to your celebrate recovery meetings? Well, I've missed the last two weeks. Are you meditating? Well, I haven't had time. I'm, I'm, you know, it's been, it's been my work week. Okay. So I'm going to ask you again, why do you feel this way? And it was staring me right in the face. I hit, I stopped my aftercare. And the second that you stop your aftercare, just like working out, you take, you take a week off and it's like you undid two years of progress. Anybody who's, you know, gone through Thanksgiving break knows that, you know, you come back in after Thanksgiving, it's like, what happened? It's the same thing with your, your mental health recovery and your healing there. If you stop, then things are going to start to go backwards. If you think about it, it's like medication that you have to take. You know, a diabetic takes insulin because it helps them stay alive, helps them stay healthy. I have to do aftercare because it helps me stay alive. It helps me stay healthy mentally. You can't stop it. I've, I've understood that this is an everyday fight that I will be experiencing. And I wake up in the morning and I know, yeah, this is another fight. Because my opponent, it has an endless supply of energy. It never gets tired. It will never go away. It's this big, black, endless, consuming darkness. And so I have to wake up and say, all right, I respect my opponent. Similar to when I was wrestling it, you know, I didn't respect my opponent. Then chances are I'm not going to wrestle very well against that, that person. But I respect the thing that I'm fighting because I know it's trying to kill me. So I wake up every day and say, okay, good morning. You're there and not today. Yeah. Today you're not going to win. Yeah. And it's that way every day. 
Yeah. The wrestling analogy is so great. I mean, you had to stay and fight and wait, right? You had to do the practices and the rituals to make sure that you're in a position where you can take on the fight. And I think that that requires energy and that energy is going to come from some of the things that you just mentioned. I want to quickly go to your hero. And uh, you mentioned at the very beginning, your hero being your wife, Alicia, and a part of this journey very much. So she can be here today and hopefully we're going to get Nick and Alicia actually be in yeah. person and do a, a part two. I, I just, I think there's something so special about that journey alone and that story that needs to be shared. But tell me a little bit about coming home. And I know that much of this has been the work on you and really being able to delve into your past and deal with the demons. How did that look with Alicia and coming back and being reignited and then ultimately finding your way to stronger families? So it can be a very challenging process. For anybody who goes through whatever type of healing or recovery that they might be choosing, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, their own type of counseling on a weekly basis, whatever that healing journey may be, one of the things that I had to realize is I go to Southern California and I'm able to start healing, but Alicia's back at home with the kids and she's she's so overwhelmed with just life in general, essentially being a single mom now to four kids. I'm able to move up. I'm able to start to get tools, but Alicia stays here. And so I had to realize when I came home, I might have gotten two and a half months of very intense therapy and healing, but Alicia hadn't. And so I had to be aware that I was coming home to a wife who was very, very exhausted. She was stressed. She was angry and rightfully so. All of the feelings that she had were completely valid. When I, on October 6th, when that night happened, Alicia experienced a critical incident as well. That was a moment of crisis for our entire family. So she has new pieces of trauma that were added while I was away. And so when I came home, initially it was... It was just such a breath of fresh air to be able to hold my wife, to be able to hold my kids, tell them in person that I loved them. But then, you know, it it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Alicia continued. She goes to a counselor as well, and she continues. So as we start to, there's a couple things that can happen when you come home. One second, Brody. When you come home, there's a couple things that can happen. Either you stay here and your, your spouse and your partner doesn't get any help. And there's this disconnect. And so one person is seeking help and healing and the other one isn't able to. And so if that stays that way, kind of you start to see the divide happen and you grow apart. Another thing that can happen is you do get the resources to your spouse and you bring them back up and you allow them to heal. That is what's going to strengthen the relationship. Alicia had to heal with a lot of things in order to just be able to, to say, yeah, it's okay. I love you. Mm. You know, that, that was even difficult for her because there are so many experiences that I put her through, you know, being a law enforcement officer's wife is not easy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So as she started to heal, things started to, we started to move forward together. And Alicia called me one day and said, Hey, I found something. It's amazing. We're going. And I'm like, okay, what is it? She goes, it's a, it's a seminar. It's called Stronger Families. It's over in Bellevue. We're going to make a weekend out of it, and we're going to go do this. And I'm saying, awesome. I'm all in, 100%. And so we show up at Stronger Families in Bellevue, 
And right away, I mean, I'm seeing light bulbs go off left and right with Alicia as, as you're talking about these experiences and she's looking at me going, Hey, he's talking about you. And I'm like, no, he's talking about everybody. <laughs> this is what we share. And so for Alicia to be able to hear some of those things, it's all starting to come together, like putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And she's able to step back and say, okay, I know exactly why Nick was acting that way. I know exactly what he was experiencing and feeling because she had a different perspective by going through stronger families. It was absolutely incredible. I can honestly say that weekend, I, you know, absent our honeymoon, I don't know. I can't think of a better weekend that we had since we've been together. We felt so in sync and so connected. It was just such a breath of fresh air. And it was almost like we were able to rediscover the why. Why did we start this family? Why did we get married? It's because we have this intense love for each other. We care about each other. Mm -hmm. And Stronger Families was able to kind of peel back that curtain and reveal, hey, this is your why again. There is a reason that this whole thing started and why you guys started together. And for anybody who has just a few hours on a weekend, uh, the Stronger Families Seminar is absolutely worth its weight in gold. And it helped open a new perspective for me. It helped open a new perspective for Alicia. And it's probably one of the biggest catalysts in our relationship to start moving forward and heal. That's amazing. You know, coming to the end of this, I think the one thing that I have been kind of just thinking about as you've been sharing your story is you wrote the suicide letter and then this journey and it literally, the clock could have stopped, but it didn't. What ultimately ended up happening with that letter? This was right after I finished my last journal entry. I took the letter with me. There were various times where I would pull that letter out and I would read through it. And I would read through it for a couple different reasons. It kind of reminded me where I was coming from. It was, it was almost a way for me to say, you know, look how far I've come in my healing. This was the, the lowest point in my life was writing a letter to my kids and telling each of them how much I loved them, going through each one of my kids and writing about how special they were to me in their own ways. That was the most difficult thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And I never wanted to see those words ever again. So after I made my journal entry, I went to my room and I said, hey, Mike, that's uh, my best friend and, and the guy who was able to help me get through my treatment. I said, Mike, I need you. And he goes, okay, where are we going? I said, we need to go to the backyard. And I had grabbed this box. One of my case managers said, here, Nick, I want you to have this tiny little wooden box and I want you to paint it any color and we're going to put things inside. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in third grade arts and crafts. So it was early on. And so I'm still kind of grumpy. So I paint the whole thing black. And she's like, that's not very colorful. And I'm like, that's the only thing I can muster right now. And she goes, you know, okay, well, black, maybe you can put your negative things in there. Like you're able to throw them in a trash bag. I grabbed that box and I grabbed that suicide letter and I went to the backyard and it was very, it was a very hard thing. And I, I'm not entirely sure why it was so difficult, but there was just a lot of emotion. And so that's why I had my friend with me and I put it in a fireplace and I burned the letter with that box. And I made a, a commitment right then and there that I was never going to see or speak those words again. I was taking it off the table as an option. It was almost as if by burning that letter, suicide was no longer an option ever in my life. And I made that commitment that my kids need me, my wife needs me. I know that there's people who care 
And as bad as it gets, I'm still going to work through it. Suicide is off the table. That letter is gone. And those words don't have value anymore. And so that's what ultimately ended up happening with the letter. There have been major setbacks that just rocked me to my core. I had to reach out to my family, uh, my mom, dad, brother and sister and their spouses to set some boundaries up while I was at First Responder Wellness. And for the first time in my life, I told every member of my family about the childhood trauma that I experienced with the sexual assaults and rape. Not one person acknowledged it. Nobody said anything. In fact, my brother-in-law said that my family was here to support me, even though I wasn't deserving of it. And so that just, that ripped my heart out. What a big setback. My own family, my mom, my dad didn't even acknowledge what had happened. And I I was taken right back to when I was a kid and didn't feel protected. And then I had to force myself to realize that my family, it, it has nothing to do with the last name or the blood. My family was there on October 6th and they saved my life. My family was coming to my house to drop off groceries, members of the department, their wives. They would stop by the house and ask Alicia, what can we do for you? I recognized my family when my actual family basically abandoned. So there are going to be setbacks and some of them are going to be big. Some of them you can work through pretty easily, but it's okay. You just have to be consistent. You have to be dedicated. You have to make the choice that you are going to dedicate yourself to living a better life, a life of happiness, joy, and continuing that treatment because it's worth it. Mm-hmm. And they are deserving of happiness. Nick, I just want to affirm just who you are. And truly, like this story is remarkable in so many ways. But I think the most remarkable part about it is your spirit to continue to fight for what matters. And that is not only for you, and loving yourself, but also your family. And so I guess my encouragement to anyone that's listening right now, I can only imagine you're probably sitting there as I'm sitting here going, this needs to be in every single person's ear that is even thinking about contemplating this idea. I'm going to end my life. But I guess my message to them, to anyone who's listening is there is hope. It's never too dark to be able to get to the other side and don't give up. And there's, there's resources. Reach out to us reach out to your department. And I think that the more we talk about this, the less the stigma is going to be a part of the equation. And I think that's what's happened here today. And so I just want to say thanks, man. Thanks for jumping on and sharing your story. I couldn't be more honored to, to be able to be a part of something that can maybe help somebody else. So thank you for what you're doing and helping get these stories out there and departments and seminars and things like that that can help other people. So thank you as well and allowing me the opportunity to share let's do it again in dallas let's do it (laughs) right on man